Alright, so if you remember from last week, we were in John chapter 3, which we still are, but we covered those, those really big verses in John chapter 3, which I would consider to be uh, 16 through 18. Uh, but today we're going to finish off chapter 3. We're going to see what else is going on here after this conversation with Nicodemus that Jesus had. <clears throat> All right, so we're going to read from 22 through 36 here, and then we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit. <clears throat> so starting at 22, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the lands of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anan, I can never pronounce that, Anan near Salim. Because there was plenty of water there, people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a matter of dispute developed on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all the people are coming to him. John replied, a person cannot receive not even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. But the friend of the groom, who stands and listens to him, rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. The one who is only from earth is, only from the, is of the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of this he testifies and no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God, for he does not give the Spirit sparingly. The Father loves the Son and has entrusted all things to his hand. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. All right, when we look at these verses, there's a lot that you could talk about in here. Three things kind of stood out for me this time around. That would be purification, influence or impact, maybe you would call it, and a reiteration of what's at stake in the gospel with something additional added at the end there. And all of these things are tied together because that's how Scripture works. So John is still baptizing for repentance of sins. We know that Jesus will tell people as well to repent. And people kept coming to John. He was effective in preparing people for Christ, for telling of them at first who was to come and then who is already here. So what we see though here is that there's a dispute now, depending on your version, it's either going to say between a Jew or the Jews. I believe the King James says the Jews. Uh, it's speaking of, remember when we hear the Jews, it's everybody there is Jewish, except for a few Gentiles running around here and there, right? 
So when they say the Jews, like you said before, it's talking of the religious elite, the people that are running the show there as far as Judaism goes. So these people, and some people think that this was Nicodemus that had come up to John. I kind of disagree only because of the fact that when, John, uh, when Nicodemus was seen earlier in the chapter, it was at night when other people maybe were less likely to see him. So I kind of don't think, but really, to be honest, it's irrelevant. What is relevant is that what we had just read, last week what we had just read, that same chapter, beginning of chapter 3, with Nicodemus and Jesus telling him that you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. So this dispute is present over purification. This Jewish person, this Jewish leader has come up to talk about it. We don't get a lot of information of what it's about. We don't see exactly what the dispute was about. But what we do get is an indirect bit of information based on the answer that was given. So maybe they were asking about the difference between John's John the Baptist and Jesus' group, how they were both baptizing. Maybe they were asking that, which would make a little bit of sense because what we saw right after that is them talking about, John, look at this. These people are all going to him to be baptized. <clears throat> What's clear is John's not bothered by it. John the Baptist is not bothered by this. And he answers proudly, comparing himself to the friend of a groom at a wedding. It's not about him. And he then finishes by saying that he must decrease. So Jesus had come. Purification. Decrease. And then also life had come with Jesus. Or wrath, depending on what someone would choose. So... And this exists in the new and everlasting covenant, which we are a part of now. So God loves us in this new covenant, in this everlasting covenant, enough to allow us this choice. This choice to follow Jesus or not. Jesus is calling us, and according to these texts, He's calling us into purification. You'll see how this makes sense in a minute here. He's calling us into decrease, but He's calling us into life. Or we can walk away from Him and we can embrace wrath. That's the two choices that we're given here. It's always the two choices that we're given in Scripture. Regardless of how much we don't like it, that's what it is. We see one is life-giving, the other is death-sustaining. It's, uh, it's very similar. Hopefully you can relate that when you came to the truth, there was probably a moment in your life where you said, all right, which way am I going to go? I understand what this is now. Which way do I choose? It's the same thing that what Scripture is constantly telling us. It's given us that choice of which road we're going to go to when we hit that fork because you can't just stay there and stare at it. When you come to the point where you know that Jesus Christ exists, it's both deadly and beautifully serious. That's the seriousness of Scripture. <clears throat> So, does John avoid the dispute over purification here when you read this text? And then also he's told of people going to Jesus. Does he avoid this? Because it's actually kind of a little bit weird the way that it reads to me. 
But it makes sense in the end here. Instead of answering the question directly, John says, he says, nothing is given to somebody unless it is from above. He doesn't answer the question directly. He starts explaining something. And he reiterates about Christ, about him not being Christ, but sent ahead of him. And then he explains that he has joy in seeing this. He has joy in seeing his ministry start to diminish, to go down. Because up until this point, John was probably fairly famous as far as pastors go, preachers go. A lot of people coming to him from outside of the city. Jerusalem was not a small city. But he has joy in seeing when Jesus' work is expanding, just as we should have joy in seeing when Jesus' work expands in our life. You know, do we want the acclaim or do we want to give it to him when something good happens? So it would seem odd as you're reading this that John the Beloved, who wrote this, would bring back John the Baptist into this explanation. Because he didn't have to. <clears throat> but you see, he brought him back in so that we can see joy and decrease. So take this as a look, think about it in your life personally. Maybe before you were saved, somebody comes up to you and after you had just done something and, and they say, oh, you know, Carlos, you're such a good guy. Look what you went and did. Now, I don't hear that a whole lot in my life, but let's just pretend I do. Um, you're such a good guy. Bless you for doing this. And you might go, all right, thanks, you know, and you go on your way. The decrease is shown when somebody comes to Christ and they're given these accolades and they go, you know what, it wasn't me. It's all Jesus working through me. Thank Him. Don't thank me. You can see where the decrease begins in your life. It's not about you. So John, in that same way, is being minimized. Jesus' reach is expanding, and it was a joy for John to see this. This is the same, remember, the same person who when he was a baby in the womb, he jumped over Jesus being near him. And now he's seeing Jesus' ministry come to fruition. So no longer are people going to hear the cry in the wilderness as they explained of John, but they're going to start coming to the Messiah. Just as when uh, I was thinking about this the other day, uh, when, when I was first exploring Christianity, I remember I would listen to a couple different pastors who I think are really good, to be honest. They're really good speakers. Uh, people like Charles Stanley, people, uh, you know, people of that ilk. And when I came to that point where, look, I'm going to follow, I'm going to follow the king. You get to the point where, well, what they're saying is good, but they're not saying it. It's not them. I'm not following them. I'm following Jesus. That's what prompts you to get into the word more. Things like that, right? So the same thing is happening here. These people aren't going to be hearing John. To be honest, they're not going to be hearing John very, very much longer anyways because he's going to go to prison soon and he's going to have his head chopped off for standing for righteousness. So, yes. So, when these people were hearing John, it was getting to the point 
to where they were going to start hearing that what is often described as that still small voice in their life. That's how Jesus should sound in us. We hear these other things, but then all of a sudden we hear this voice, this prompting that is deeper, that is more powerful, that has more influence and more prestige than anything that any pastor standing up at the front could say or anybody in a Bible study could say. That's what we're listening for. Because when God calls, the other voices fall back. That's when we take our knee to the King. So that's what's happening here. The shepherd is taking over. And like I said, this is a good time for you in your life to remember when it is that the shepherd took over for you. And if you can't remember that time, maybe now's the time. Everybody has it at a different point in their life. When Jesus takes that prime position and you become less, yet your joy increases. It's perplexing to think about. So we see John here, and if you read chapter 3 all in one shot, it makes a lot of sense because you see John the Baptist here as a counter to who? To Nicodemus, who could not understand what was going on here. I mean, how many times did he ask Jesus, what? What do you mean? What is this that you're talking about? But then we see John the Baptist, who not only understands it, but he revels in it. He loves it. He loves to see Jesus Christ increase. He loves to see his impact on the area as he's going about and preaching his ministry. Because to be born again is to love God, to acknowledge, as John said here, all good things that come from above, to acknowledge that the good you do, your new mindset, your new attitude towards sin, and your ability to forgive everyone, that that comes from God, not from you. All the glory is being placed on God, and you are decreasing. So these people were leaving. They were leaving John, and they were going to the shepherd, the shepherd who knows their name. Right? Just as he knows ours. He knows every one of our names. That's who we go to. We don't go to a man. We don't have allegiance to a church, to a pastor. Ultimately, our allegiance is to Christ. Right? Churches come and go. Pastors come and go. We see them fall sometimes in sin. But Christ is there forever. So did John answer the dispute over, purif- over purification here? Do we see an answer for it? For our lives, because when we're reading this question, we're going, okay, well, how do I get purified? Right? What is the answer for me? John calls Jesus the bridegroom. Now, in the Old Testament, only God was the husband to Israel, to the nation of Israel. So when they hear him calling Jesus the bridegroom, they know a couple different things here. They know that he's referring to Jesus Christ as God because only God can be the bridegroom. And they also know that he's referring to who? To the person who is compared as the Lamb. What did John the Baptist tell us earlier in chapter 1? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the answer to the purification dispute. It is only in Jesus that it's possible be purified. That's why John the Baptist, instead of just answering straight out, he goes into this dialogue about the Lord. 
about his diminishment, about Christ's increase, about how, because in Jesus, that's where we're finding our salvation. That's where we're finding our sanctification, which is becoming more Christ-like, which is becoming more pure in the blood of Christ the Lamb. I assume that everyone agrees in this. Maybe? No? So, if in humility, if in the fear of God or the love of God, the acknowledgement of God's might, if in His work, whichever, whichever your path is that you come to God, when we come to Him in this, we, we find that purification and we walk away from His wrath into His arms. Kind of weird how that works out. But that wrath is given to Christ in our stead. So we saw in verses 16 through 18, remember I was saying that 16 through 18 largely should be read as one set of verses. People often just read 16, but they leave off those other two. But we see in 16 through 18 where Jesus provides the opportunity for salvation to everyone, for all the world, it says. And then we see that there are some who will ignore it, some who will refuse it, and they are condemned. That's what we see in 16 through 18, which we're not covering today. But So here we see those that are condemned, that they face wrath. The wrath of God is what it says. Now I understand, um, I understand the accusation that sometimes uh, I've been told that I maybe preach a little too heavy on the justice of God. I get it. I understand and I'm probably guilty of it. It's, it's one of the things that called me, but it doesn't call for everyone like that. But the problem is that sometimes people forget it altogether. They just throw it out the window. So the, my goal, and you can correct me anytime you want, I, in fact, I encourage it, is to always try to preach in a balanced manner of the Scriptures, hopefully. That's the goal. That's why we also have these, at the end, I encourage you to... To, to have your questions or your comments or your rebuttals, maybe I'm wrong on something. So, but I love I love the gospel because of all these attributes of God. Like last week, how we talked about with the hourglass, it's important that we not only walk in the gospel, but that we preach the gospel, because everyone has to make a choice in this life, and we are commanded to tell them so that they can hear that choice and make it. And it's important because of the things that are said in Scripture. In Romans 2.5, listen to this. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God doesn't dole out any more or any less than what we deserve. That's scriptural. And when we, we, you know, we understand justice. As a people, we understand justice. When we, you know, every time something really bad happens, we definitely call for it. If somebody is a rapist, child molester, uh, a murderer, or even monetarily, if some CEO goes and bilks an entire company of billions of dollars, crashes it, we call for justice then. But. God's domain of justice also is with our soul. And that's the one where sometimes we're like, oh, I don't want to hear about that justice quite so much. Let me leave that alone. But you see, if you have a rounded 
scriptural picture of God. If you have a rounded scriptural picture of God, you're going to see that He's holy, that He's just, and the scriptures do say that He is wrathful towards sin. But those make, here's the, here's the key. This is why I don't think it's, it's a bad thing to know about those things. Those make his other attributes shine all the more. Because he also displays what? Love. He displays mercy. And he displays grace. So thank the Lord for those. Right? That's why the gospel has power though. All of these things are why the gospel has power. Because we would not understand mercy and love without the backdrop of justice and wrath. Because you see, mercy, we all we talk about mercy, but we don't think about it too much. But mercy is not getting what we deserve. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. That's the that's uh that's completely scriptural when we look at that. So when it comes to Christ. That grace is ours to embrace. Because God's wrath didn't go away. God's wrath did not go away. It was satisfied on the cross on Christ. Christ did what we could never do. He saved sinners. That's what He did for us. Romans 3.26 talks about this as well. It says, the demonstration, that is, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is saying that Jesus saves sinners. And thank God He did. So because of Jesus Christ, God calls sinners justified before Himself. That's why the Gospel is so beautiful. Because all of these attributes of God work together to make the gospel powerful. So last week, I quoted John Wesley. Um, so I figured today I would end the end with a quote from his brother Charles. So just keep it in the family. There's a couple weeks here. Just this quote, and then we'll be done here. It says, "Can it be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died for me, who caused his pain." For me, who him to death pursued, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? <clears throat> Does anybody have any 